As you probably figured out, Psalm 136 was, be, was written to be used in a responsorial way in Israel's worship. Most likely, the worship leader chanted or sang the first line in each verse, and the congregation responded with the second line. And I'm sure you quickly picked up in our responsive reading of the psalm and even in our singing that the second half of each verse is the same throughout the entire psalm. In the New King James Version, the repeated refrain is, For his mercy endures forever. Now, I want you to be honest with yourself. As we repeated that phrase 26 times, did you perhaps find it a bit boring? After about the fifth time, did you feel like saying to the anonymous songwriter, okay, we get the point, can we just move on to something else? To which he might have replied, not yet, we've just got 21 more times to go. You see, one of the points of Psalm 136 is that we never get beyond its refrain as if it is something we can leave behind. That is because the refrain tells us perhaps the most important thing we need to know about God's character and what motivates God to action. So before we begin working our way through Psalm 136, I want to begin by focusing on its refrain. Now, as I said, in the New King James, it is translated, for his mercy endures forever. And the Hebrew word translated mercy is hesed. It's one of just a handful of Hebrew words that it's worth knowing as a Christian. It is rich in meaning, such that it is really difficult to translate. Some of the other translations in our English Bibles, besides mercy, are love in the NIV, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, faithfulness in the NASB, and then when they updated the NASB, loving kindness, steadfast love in the ESV, faithful love in the New Living Translation, um, the variety of translations in our English Bibles reflects the difficulty of, of pinning down the meaning of hesed in just one or two words. Nevertheless, at the heart of the various translations is the concept of love. And it is love that the psalmist says endures forever. And as we work through the psalm, rather than mercy, I'm going to use the phrase steadfast love to translate this word. Psalm 136 is about God's steadfast love that is never-ending, and that is a theme we must never outgrow. Now, if the psalmist feels the need to repeat this truth over and over, it may be because we have a tendency to forget it. And so throughout the psalm, he gives many examples of God's steadfast love in action, all of which are intended to draw forth our praise and thanksgiving. So with that meaning of the refrain in mind, we're not going to read it every time it appears, but we do need to remember that the declaration of God's unfailing love undergirds every single verse in this psalm. Now we're going to work our way through it following this outline. First of all, there's a call for thanksgiving in verses 1 through 3. Then God's love in action in verses 4 through 25. We're going to see six examples of God's love in action. And then God, a call for thanksgiving in verse 26. And we're going to conclude with some new covenant reflections on this old covenant song. 
So we want to study Psalm 136 to learn what it teaches about God's love for the world, God's love for ancient Israel, and God's love for us. We begin with the call for thanksgiving in the first three verses. The psalm begins with a triple call to give thanks. Thanksgiving should ever fill the heart of a believer. When the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 explains how all human beings know God through creation, he offers this judgment on those who claim to be unbelievers. He writes, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. Thanksgiving is the proper response to God, and its absence is a primal sin. Thus, it is appropriate that this psalm of praise begins with his threefold call for thanks. Now, we're not left in doubt as to whom thanksgiving is due in this psalm. Verse 1, give thanks to the Lord. And you'll see there, Lord in all capital letters. That's Yahweh, God's covenant name. This thanksgiving is coming from Yahweh's people, and it's being offered to their covenant God. Verse 2, give thanks to the God of gods. Verse 3, give thanks to the Lord of lords. Deuteronomy 10.17 instructs Israel, For Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. You see, there are many false gods. The nations around them all worship false gods, but Yahweh is the one true God over all those pretenders. There are many who might claim lordship and authority, but Yahweh is the one Lord over all the lesser lords. This is the one to whom we are called to give thanks. Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, God of gods and Lord of lords. So we now know who deserves thanksgiving, but but apart from some focus on his sovereignty, we don't know specifically that for which we are to be thankful. And that's the theme of the whole psalm. And it's introduced in these opening verses in two expressions. First of all, in verse 1, we're told, He is good. I think the very first prayer I learned as a child was a table grace that began, God is great, God is good, let us thank Him for our food. And there's very good theology in that simple prayer. You see, it is because God is good that he provides food for our tables. And it's no small thing to confess God is good, especially in our day when there are many who say that the God of the Bible is anything but good. Sometimes when things don't seem to be going our way, even we may be tempted to doubt God's goodness. One of the purposes of regularly giving thanks to God is that it helps fortify our faith for the hard times. Throughout Psalm 136, we will find many expressions of God's goodness on display. And celebrating these should help us fix in our minds the character of God. And I want to encourage you to keep that in mind as we will be singing this psalm throughout this month. That as we sing, we are singing about examples of God's love and action that are meant to encourage us, that are meant to fill us with hope, that are meant to fill us in the assurance of God's unchanging love. And besides the statement that God is good, we also have that refrain itself, His mercy endures forever. We see that in each of the first three verses. So linked with God's goodness is His unfailing, steadfast love. 
So the opening verses of this psalm call us to give thanks to God for His goodness and love. And then the psalm shifts to providing examples from history of God's love in action. So that brings us to our second section of the sermon. And here, we're going to break down six examples of God's love in action in verses 4 through 25. The first is creation. Verses 4 through 9, creation. Verse 4 begins with a summary statement of what follows. To him who alone does great wonders. Yahweh, the God of gods and Lord of lords, alone does great wonders. None of the pretending gods of the nations about does such great wonders as Yahweh. And the psalmist begins to explore this theme with a focus on some of the wonders of creation. Verse 5, to him who by wisdom made the heavens. Now back verse 2, thanksgiving is directed to the God of gods. And this sets up a contrast between Yahweh, the one true God, and all the false gods of the surrounding nations. And one of the primary things that sets Yahweh apart from these false gods is his role as creator. The prophet Jeremiah made this explicit comparison in Jeremiah 10, 10 through 12. The prophet writes, But Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth will tremble, and the nations will not be able to endure His indignation. Thus you shall say to them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He has made the earth by His power. He has established the world by His wisdom and has stretched out the heavens at His discretion." You see, none of the false gods of the nations created the heavens and the earth. Indeed, these false gods are destined to perish from under the heavens before the wisdom and the power of Yahweh. Then verse 6, to him who laid out the earth above the waters. Now Genesis 1 looms in the background of this praise to Yahweh as creator in this psalm. And this verse harks back to the third day of creation, described in Genesis 1, 9 through 10. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. In its initial stage of creation, the earth was covered with water. It was a planet of one great sea. And God's act of raising the earth above the waters was more than simply a display of great power. It was an act of love for mankind. When God separated the dry land from the sea, he was preparing an environment for his image bearers. He was creating a home for humanity. How appropriate it is to say of this great deed, for his steadfast love endures forever. Then verses 7 through 9, To him who made great lights, the sun to rule by day, the moon and stars to rule by night. Once again, God's cosmic acts are signs of his favor to humanity. He not only created a physical environment for human beings, he created a rhythm for our existence. The sun is put in charge of the day and the moon is put in charge of the night. And in this way, God provides us a way to mark our days and to track time. 
Now, before moving on, I want to reflect a bit more about what Psalm 136 teaches us about creation. You'll know that there's an ongoing battle in our day between those who, like ourselves, believe in divine creation and those who believe in some form of naturalistic evolution as an explanation for the origin of the universe. And we should defend the reality of divine creation of all things out of nothing. But this psalm suggests another aspect of creation that we may too easily miss. And that is the answer to this question. Why did God create all things? Have you ever thought about it? We know he did, but why did he do so? Well, the psalmist tells us God created out of a motive of love. And this was nothing new to God. He knew all about love before creation. The one God has existed eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect, loving communion. Jesus reflected back to this time before time in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus didn't just start experiencing God's love when he was a baby in Bethlehem. He was the eternal Son of God who had experienced love with the Father for all eternity. And we should also remember that the triune God had no need to create anything. Father, Son, and Spirit were a self-sufficient community of mutual love. They didn't lack anything. They weren't lonely. They didn't need anyone else to sing their praises. So why did God create? Because his steadfast love endures forever. Father, Son, and Spirit created all things to extend love outside themselves and to draw others into their circle of love. God loves all that he created. As we know from a very familiar verse, God so loved the world. The Greek word there is cosmos. His purpose always was and still is to bring all of the world to its creation potential. A goal that has been delayed but not set aside by the fall into sin. And within creation, it is especially his image bearers that will be drawn into the communion of love within the Trinity. Is that your hope? That's what is held out for us, that we are going to be drawn into, we are being drawn into that circle of love that God experiences within himself. Now, much more could be said about that, but we want to summarize here by simply noting that creation is the first expression of God's love in action. The next one we come to in this psalm is the exodus from Egypt in verses 10 through 15. Now, the psalmist moves selectively through Israel's history, knowing that his audience would be familiar with God's dealings with Noah and Abraham, those things that came between creation and the calling of Israel to be his people. So he moves from creation to Exodus. And when the Israelites made confession of God's great wonders on the stage of history, the highlight for them was always the Exodus from Egypt. This was the signal act of divine deliverance, of salvation in the Old Covenant, 
that anticipated a greater deliverance to come in the new. And so we next read in verses 10 through 12, To him who struck Egypt in their firstborn and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm. Back in Genesis 15, Yahweh spoke to Abraham and prophesied that his descendants would endure bondage in Egypt. Genesis 15, 3. This is the Lord speaking to Abraham. Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. But then that prophecy continued with this good news. And also, the nation whom they serve, I will judge, and afterward, They shall come out with great possessions. Yahweh exercised his steadfast love by being true to this promise of deliverance. He sent plague after plague upon the Egyptians, but as you know, Pharaoh wouldn't budge. Finally, Yahweh directed the Israelite families to to kill lambs and to mark their doorways with the blood. And when he came in judgment, he spared the houses marked by the blood of the Passover lambs But he killed all the firstborn in Egypt, including Pharaoh's firstborn son. Thus it happened, as we read here, that Yahweh struck Egypt in their firstborn. Pharaoh responded by calling for Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night and directing them to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And after spoiling the Egyptians, that is, taking of gold, silver, and clothing from them, the Israelites departed. God was faithful to his covenant promise in Genesis 15 when he brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm. And then we read in verses 13 through 15, To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. Of course, the Egyptians were quickly in pursuit of their fleeing slaves. It never took Pharaoh long to change his mind in order to resist Yahweh and his servant Moses. And it seemed like the Egyptians would prevail when they closed the Israelites in, trapping them with their backs to the Red Sea. But Yahweh had promised deliverance, and he is faithful to keep his promises. He miraculously divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it. And when the Egyptians followed in pursuit, the waters came crashing down upon them in all their destructive and drowning fury. And thus Yahweh overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. Of the exodus from Egypt, the psalmist rightly declares, his steadfast love endures forever. We next see God's love in action in the wilderness sojourn in verses 16 through 20. Verse 16, to him who led his people through the wilderness. Now, don't skip too quickly over this statement. Remember, it was only by a succession of miracles that Yahweh led his people through the wilderness. Consider some of them. He provided bread from heaven, water flowing from rocks, the cloud which protected them from the sun's heat by day, the pillar of fire as a sign of Yahweh's presence, the miraculous preservation of their clothing. In these ways and many more, Yahweh continued to exercise his strong hand on behalf of his children. His leading through the wilderness again demonstrated that his steadfast love endures forever. And then verses 17 through 20 
to him who struck down great kings and slew famous kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. You see, the Pharaoh of Egypt was not the only king to resist Yahweh's people. As they stood near the verge of entering the promised land, it was two kings, Sihon and Og, who blocked the way of the Israelites, and they were very imposing enemies. Now, children, I have a question for you, okay? Children, I got a question for you. Do any of you know anyone named Og? Anybody? Nobody named Og? Probably not. You know, it's one of those Bible names that when parents are thinking, I want to use a Bible name for my child, and they have a son, they don't quickly go to, to Og. There's good reason for that. Listen to this description of Og found in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 3.11, For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Nine cubits is its length, and four cubits its width, according to the standard cubit. Now, that may not mean much to you until I explain that the Rephaim were a race of giants, and in his day, Og was the last remaining giant of the Rephaim. Well, how big was he? Well, we get some idea because he slept in a bed of iron, which means he must have weighed a lot. Probably a normal bed of wood would have just snapped beneath him. And how, how tall was he? Well, his bed was 13 feet long, translating those cubits for you. So obviously he was very tall. He was huge. But a giant in the eyes of men is as nothing before the one true God. Yahweh led his people in victory over Og and Sihon in order to lead them to the land of promise. It was another sign that his steadfast love endures forever. Next, he continues to show his love and action in Israel's possession of the land in verses 21 through 22. We read, And gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant. Yahweh had promised Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. And after leading them through the wilderness, he fulfilled that promise. Now later, Israelites would would know that their forebears had disobeyed in the wilderness. They didn't deserve in any merit of their own to possess the land. And this would just highlight for them all the more that possession of the land pointed to the fact that it's his steadfast love that endures forever. And in the psalmist's selective review of history, it seems that he now jumps way ahead to deliverance from exile. That is, deliverance from exile in Babylon in verses 23 and 24. Who remembered us in our lowly estate and rescued us from our enemies. In these verses, there's a shift in pronouns from them that he's been using of people in the past to us. He's bringing it into the present. And the word remembered, as we've said before, has great significance. It is used when God acts in faithfulness to his past covenant promises. When the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt, we read, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And this act of divine remembering was the prelude to divine deliverance. God remembers in order to keep his promises. 
Just as Yahweh remembered his covenant when his children were in Egypt, so he continues to remember it. This psalm was probably composed soon after the return from exile in Babylon, a time described in the opening words of the very next psalm, Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept. The memory of deliverance from Babylon and its bondage was fresh in the mind of the psalmist. It was an ongoing reality that Yahweh remembered us in our lowest state and rescued us from our enemies. Yahweh's faithfulness continues. And why? For his steadfast love endures forever. And this flashback upon that recent redemption seems to be followed by a flashback finally upon creation. Verse 25, who gives food to all flesh. The language of verse 25 takes us back to the time of Noah when God delivered a new creation from the waters of the flood. And at that time, he made a covenant with Noah and all living creatures. And in Genesis 9, 15, God declares, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. You see, Yahweh continues faithful to this Noahic covenant as he gives food to all flesh. Wherever the psalmist looks, in history or in creation, in the past or in the present, he sees cause to declare of the Lord his steadfast love endures forever. And that brings us to the third portion of the psalm, and that's the call for thanksgiving in verse 25. Having reviewed examples of Yahweh's covenant faithfulness in creation, in redemption, in the ongoing care of his people, the psalmist concludes the psalm as he began with a call for thanksgiving. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven. And we can expect that this call would be all the more effective as it follows the many examples just given of God's love in action. By this point, there can be no doubt that his steadfast love endures forever. We want to conclude with some new covenant reflections on this old covenant song. We, the church today, can learn much from Psalm 136. We can join the psalmist in giving thanks to God for his covenant faithfulness in creation, in redemption from Egypt into the promised land, in deliverance from exile, and in his ongoing care of all his creatures. This Old Covenant drama is our spiritual family history. And so it is good for us to sing psalms like this as our forefathers did. Yahweh's steadfast love truly does endure forever. But as New Covenant believers, we have an even richer experience in making this our confession. That is because the drama has continued and even more promises have been fulfilled. Of this psalm's refrain, his steadfast love endures forever, the German reformer Martin Luther said, in this repeated expression, the psalmist looks to the promise of Christ to come. And clearly the ultimate expression of God's covenant faithfulness is his provision of a Savior in his Son, Jesus Christ. Through the lens of the new covenant, we can look back and even see the presence of Christ throughout Psalm 136. In verse 5, we give thanks to him who by wisdom made the heavens, 
Who is this understanding, this wisdom active in creation? Paul tells us Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 1.24. And that by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, Colossians 1.16. It was the eternal Son of God who, as wisdom with the Father, created all things. When we praise God for making the heavens by wisdom, we are also singing the praises of our Savior. And Jesus Christ was active not only in setting the stage in creation, but also in the drama of redemption that ensued. The Passover lambs whose blood was shed to save the Israelites in Egypt were shadowy anticipations of a greater lamb to come. And Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. God honored the blood of those little lambs for the temporal salvation of his people in Egypt. But their eternal salvation was dependent upon the greater sacrifice to which they pointed, that of the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And this Christ was with them even then. Recall the deliverance from Egypt and and preservation in the wilderness as you hear Paul describe it in 1 Corinthians 10. Moreover, brethren, the apostle writes, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, And that rock was Christ. Christ was Israel's sustenance in the wilderness, going with them into the promised land. It is of Christ that we sing, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. And all this was but a picture in miniature of the greater redemption, which is ours because of Jesus. The drama has progressed Through Christ's sacrificial death, we have been delivered from slavery even greater than the physical bondage in Egypt or the exile in Babylon. We have been delivered from spiritual bondage to sin. Through his death, Jesus has led a new exodus. And through his resurrection, he has initiated a new creation. And that new creation has not yet matured in all its glory, but we can be certain it will. Why? Because God has promised it, and his steadfast love endures forever. Christian, I call you to live a life distinguished by thanksgiving to God for all he has done, is doing, and will do for you through Jesus Christ. You can trust in him because he loves you. He loves you. And his steadfast love endures forever.